Hi everyone, in this video podcast we're going to explore the fulfillment process, another one of the core business processes that is implemented within ERP systems and gives us an opportunity to explore how they manage information and how the overall process conducts itself within contemporary organizations. The fulfillment process is often referred to as the sales order process because it is the process that fundamentally focuses on orders coming into our organization and then our ultimately fulfilling those orders in shipping them out to customers and receiving payment. The steps in the fulfillment process are, as you see listed here, we have the first step being receiving an inquiry from a customer our creating and sending a quotation in response to that inquiry, our receiving a purchase order from a customer, our creating of a sales order, our preparing the shipment, which includes picking and packing the shipment, and then ultimately sending the shipment to the customer, and then our creating and sending an invoice, and ultimately receiving payment. There's an obvious symmetry here between the fulfillment process and what we talked about previously in the procurement process. As the procurement process looks at buying, the fulfillment process looks at selling, and so we do see a lot of the same concepts and documents at work, albeit in our position as being the fulfiller of an order as opposed to the originator of the order. Notice with the sales order process as represented here, we do see two potential entry points into the process, two distinct triggers. The first trigger that is noted here is our receiving an inquiry from a customer and our responding to that inquiry with a quotation. And you might recall that in our discussion of the procurement process, we talked about the request for quotation process and how we would commonly send a request for a quote to an supplier and have that supplier respond to us with a price list and set of terms. Well, now we're looking at that from the seller's perspective. And so one way that this process could begin is by our receiving an inquiry from the customer and responding with a quotation. Certainly, we hope that that leads us to receiving a purchase order from the customer. Now, in fact, many times we will not have an inquiry from a customer. We simply will receive a purchase order based on other information that we have previously sent to the customer or perhaps the customer seeing our price list and merchandise uh, in a catalog or on the website or some other similar forum. So we may jump into the sales order process bypassing the inquiry and quotation stage and just beginning with the execution and receipt of a customer's purchase order. From there, you'll notice the other documents involved in the fulfillment process. We have the actual sales order document, the picking document, the packing list, the invoice, and the payment. And certainly in our other discussions, we have talked already about the packing list, the invoice, and many of the other documents that you see listed here. As far as the functional areas involved, we do see that salespeople are typically the ones that are involved in the receiving of inquiries, the sending of quotations, receiving of purchase orders, and so on. The warehouse is where the orders are actually prepared and shipped, and then the accounting area of the organization is responsible typically for the preparation of the invoice and then ultimately receiving the payment. And so as far as the document flow associated with this particular transaction, we have a customer inquiry which leads to a quotation and I've italicized both of those in this particular slide to indicate that this is an optional part of the process and we may not have these two documents in a particular instance of a process. Then a customer purchase order followed by our creation of a sales order, a picking document, a packing document, a customer invoice, and then the customer payment. Now, when we covered the procurement process, I showed you alternate views or representations of that process. And so I'll do the same thing here with the fulfillment process. 
where we have another representation here where we have pre-sales activities as being the first element of this and that corresponds with our inquiry and quotation steps in the previous diagram. Sales order entry, checking of availability, picking materials, packing materials, posting of the goods issue, invoicing the customer, and then ultimately the receipt of the customer payment. And so you'll notice that there are some elements of the overall transactional process here that are included that were not in the previous model. And in particular, the post goods issue phase is one that we will spend some time talking about here as our discussion continues. We have given many of our processes other names based on the common terminology that references the business process step that begins the process and the one that ends the process. And this particular process is often referred to as the order to cash process because the process begins with a customer order and then ultimately ends with our receipt of cash from the customer. Well, let's talk about pre-sales activities. Pre-sales documents really are any documents that we would prepare in our organization to encourage and or facilitate the customer actually doing business with us. And one very common form of pre-sales document is a quotation that we might prepare. But there are other documents that we could prepare of a promotional nature that may or may not actually be represented in our ERP system. One of the goals of pre-sales documents is to try and identify the possible sale and the determination of the probability of making a sale in the future. And this is very useful for us in trying to anticipate what will happen in the future of our organization and using this for planning production and evaluating our present position in the market, assessing our current marketing activities and so on. As an example, you're familiar with in our ERP SIM activities where one of the challenges that you face as a company is figuring out exactly what product demand will look like in the future and using that to set prices and plan the manufacturing of different products in your plants. Well imagine if within ERP SIM if you really did have a sales force that went out and visited customers and when those salespeople went out and visited customers perhaps they reported on their activities and so even when they did not make a sale they might record facts about customers interest in certain things and quotations they made and so on and perhaps based on information that we collect over time, let's say that we determine that 50% of the time when we give a quotation to a customer, that actually turns into an order within the next two weeks. Well, if we really did have that kind of historical track record, it might be useful for us to know how many quotations our salespeople issued today and for what products and in uh, what particular quantities so that as we're planning production for the next week, two weeks, or three weeks, we can factor those into our planning process. So one of the nice things about pre-sales documents is it gives us ability to get insight into what will hopefully happen in the future. Recognizing, of course, that not everyone that gets a quotation from our company will place an order, but companies will typically find that through calculations that they can do internally, they begin to develop a pattern and can begin to predict percentages and other things of that sort that are helpful to them. In our discussion previously where we talked about sending a request for quotation to a supplier, we talked about that, but I don't know that we actually looked at a hypothetical document. And so what we see here is an inquiry such as might be sent to an organization. Once again, an inquiry and a request for quotation are fundamentally the same thing, just different terminology. And you can see here 
that this particular sample is just a letter sent to an organization saying what it is that the customer is interested in purchasing and referencing quantities and requesting price quotes. You might think it unusual that organizations do this. It might seem that you would think that, well, couldn't they just look on our website or look in our catalogs and see the prices that we have published? And one reason why quotations are often necessary is because in an organization that buys in large volume, there often is more than one pricing schedule in play. And so if a customer is purchasing one of a certain item, that might be one price point. If they're purchasing a hundred of the item, there might be a different price point associated with that, and so on. And so for many organizations, they don't widely publish a given stated price list because there is that variability. There is also the ability for some customers to be considered better customers than others, perhaps based on their track record, and so for there to be different pricing schedules. So one reason why inquiries and quotations are necessary is because of the fact that there is such variability in prices when it comes to organizational purchasing, and so the inquiry and quotation process gives us a way to find out what our actual situation is when we're buying and for us to extend terms of a transaction to a customer that's considering buying from us. And so the typical pre-sales documents are we, that we see are the inquiry which comes to us from a current or potential customer that requests information needed for them to evaluate and potentially place an order from us. And there's absolutely no commitment on the part of the customer when they send us a, an inquiry. So in terms of this being a legal document, there is no legal significance associated with an inquiry. The customer is not in any way obligating themselves to a particular action in the future. A quotation which is the response that we give when we receive an inquiry, is a legally binding representation by a seller regarding things such as product availability, price, selling terms, and fulfillment. And of course, quotations are commonly given in response to an inquiry. But in fact, we could give a quotation to a customer even if we never actually received an inquiry document. Maybe, for example, a salesperson is going to go out and call on a business and try and sell them a line of products. That salesperson might prepare a quotation on his own as a part of preparing for the sales call and perhaps commit that to hard copy and bring it with him and leave it with the customer on that particular sales call. So in fact, Quotations can be generated in response to a customer inquiry or can just be generated in general based on our hopes of selling a product to a customer. Historically in business, this was a process that actually took a period of time. A customer would send an inquiry to a business and the business might have to manually prepare the quotation. And so there would be the passage of a few days perhaps or even longer period of time between the generation of the inquiry and the receipt of the quotation. Well in fact in ERP the distinction here is very very subtle because the response is virtually instantaneous. And in fact, in most ERP systems, if we receive an inquiry from a customer and enter that inquiry into our ERP system, essentially the quotation is generated simultaneous with that. So there's very little difference in the actual documents in our ERP system if we were to look at a customer inquiry and our response by way of quotation to that customer inquiry. So the distinction here tends to be very, very subtle. The inquiries that are in our ERP system indicate when the customer requested a price quote from us 
and we respond to an inquiry with a quotation and so the quotation is something that we are doing and so this instantaneous response to an inquiry eliminates the cycle time that historically has taken place between the receipt of the inquiry and the creation of the quotation. This is a quotation document and there are a number of things of interest here in this document that we want to focus on. We'll come back to this in just a moment but notice that one of the key elements in the quotation is in circle number two and that is the terms associated with this particular sale. Of course we have who the quotation is issued to, we have a listing of materials and prices, and then other elements are listed such as shipping calculations and so on. Some elements to note about the quotation. First of all, quotations are typically, for most organizations, non-transferable. And so it's very common for us to see somewhere represented on the quotation documents statements to the, to the effect that this quotation is only good for the company that is referenced as the quotation being generated for. Additionally, you'll notice in this particular document by Circle 2, it says that this quotation is valid for 30 days. Well, that's a key element here because if we do not list a time horizon associated with this particular quotation, then the implication would seem to be that this quotation is good in perpetuity. So, hypothetically, 10 years from now, a customer comes back to us and places an order and tries to use these prices that we have given them that could at minimum result in confusion and certainly could raise a bone of contention in our relationship with our customers and so quotations will almost always have validity periods associated with them that indicate the period of time which the quotation is good for. Notice there are other terms of sale associated with the transaction that are key elements here. There's an old adage that you will often hear in the buying and selling process when it comes to terms of sale and that is the statement to the effect that a one party will let the other party name the price if the second party can name the terms of sale. And so for example if you had a vehicle that you were trying to sell and if I came to you and said I would like to buy your vehicle and I will pay you whatever sum of money you want as long as you let me set the terms of sale. And maybe you said, well, that sounds good to me. I will sell you my car for $100,000. And I would say, okay, that's great. I will buy your car for $100,000. So we have an agreement about the price. And now I will name my terms of sale. And my terms of sale are that I will pay you a dollar a month every month until such a time as the debt is satisfied. Well, it's not very likely that you're going to be very happy with that arrangement. Obviously, in every transaction, we need to specify not only the dollar values associated with the transaction, but exactly when we have to pay and other key terms of sale associated with the overall transaction. And so the quotation spells those things out so that there is no ambiguity and there is no confusion. Well, once we have received an inquiry from a customer and once we have granted a quotation, the next step in the process is hopefully our receipt of a purchase order from a customer in, in, for an item that we're going to sell them. And so the next step in the process is the order entry. Now, in fact, orders may originate in a wide variety of ways. The customer might call us on the phone and place the order. They might fax us the order. They might give the order to a salesperson. As we observed a moment ago, they might base the order on a quotation that we have given them. Or they could just place an order with us without ever having received a formal quotation. As we observed in our discussion of the procurement process, one of the key elements in the order entry process here will be our receiving of a purchase order from a customer. And as we have already observed, a purchase order, if 
the seller accepts it is a legally binding request for a product purchase. And so it is accepted by us or rejected by us when we are the seller. And so if we send a quotation to a customer, that is our representation of what we see as an acceptable transaction that we can do with them. If they accept our offer, they will respond with a purchase order indicating the terms of sale that they would like to see and the order that they would like to place. And then we accept that and we now have a validly executed contract. A key element for our organization is to make sure that when we are putting sales orders into the system, that we are capturing all of the information necessary to fulfill that order at the time of order entry. Let's say, for example, that we have products that are available in different sizes or different colors or other elements that are obviously very important in being able to fulfill the customer order. Well, what we don't want to have happen is we don't want to ever have a sales order go into our system that doesn't have all of the information in it that is needed for us to fulfill it. The people in the warehouse are not psychic and so they can't just guess what colors or sizes or other things are needed there. And so one of the things that it is important in the actual order entry process is that we capture all of the key elements necessary in order to be able to service this order accurately. Another key element here is we have to make sure that the purchase order that the customer has sent us actually matches up with either the quotation that we have given the customer or our general terms of sale that we extend to any customer. And so, as I observed a moment ago, different customers pay different prices. Different customers have different valid terms of sale. And so for that reason, one of the things that we will want our system to do is to verify that the sales order that we have from this particular customer actually matches up with the terms that we agree to extend to that customer. We also need to, as a part of this, verify the customer's eligibility to order from us. Maybe, for example, we have previously granted the customer credit on other purchases that they have made and they have not paid for those yet. Well, are we going to extend them another order on credit, thereby increasing the risk to our organization that they might not pay? It's very common, for example, in the restaurant industry for new restaurants not to be extended much in the way of a line of credit from their purveyors because new restaurants have quite a track record of going out of business very quickly. And so it's very common for new restaurants to have to pay cash up front and then after they've been in business for a period of time and have established a successful track record, then they'll begin to be having credit terms extended to them. But even in those cases, if we've sold a customer a large order last week and they've placed a large order with us this week and they haven't paid for either of those two orders and now they want to purchase a third thing from us, we might want to get some money from the customer before we'll service this next order. So we want our system to be able to look at customers' lines of credit and outstanding orders with us as a part of verifying their eligibility. Likewise, we might have certain products that are restricted to only be sold to certain of our customers, maybe products that are custom made for a particular customer or a situation where a customer has an exclusive dealership arrangement with us. And so checking of product restrictions is a key element in the sales order entry process. Ultimately, what we are looking at here in the order entry phase is the question, is our company willing and able to accept this order from a customer? And if we are, we accept the order, it is, goes into our system, it is given a sales order number, and now we go about beginning to fulfill the, pro the 
order that has been placed with us. On the other hand, if we decide that we are going to reject the order for whatever reason, then we're of course going to have to notify the customer of that in some fashion. As a part of the evaluation process that we have just talked about, there's a large amount of master data that is going to be referenced by the ERP system. For example, we're going to look at the customer master information to find out information about this particular business that would like to purchase with us. We're going to reference product master data to find out information about the items that they wish to purchase from us. And so in our previous discussion where we talked about the different classes of data in the various information systems, this is a good example of the use of master data. Let's talk in more detail about one key element of the order entry process and this goes back to being an element in the quotation step as well and that is terms of sale. Terms of sale for a particular transaction specify the terms associated with two individual elements here. The payment and when payment has to be made and then the party that is responsible for various transaction elements. And so look, let's look at those items in more detail. One of the key questions, of course, with any transaction is when is payment to be made? In some cases, perhaps the customer has to pay upfront before we are going to ship the item out to them. But of course, it is very common in business for our organization to extend credit terms to a customer. Well, in our invoices that we send to our customers, in our quotations that we provide customers, we will list what those terms of payment are. And you will frequently see notations such as net 30, net 60, and so on. And this is a reference to that once the customer receives the invoice from us, in terms of net 30, that means they have 30 days to pay. Net 60 means they have to pay us within 60 days. Now net 60 would be rather atypical because of course typically companies want their money quickly. So you're much more likely to see net 15 or net 30 than you would be to see extended terms such as net 60, net 90 or so on. It is very common as an enticement to get companies to pay and to pay promptly where a seller will extend a discount for prompt payment. This is often referred to as a cash discount, although of course typically the customer is not actually giving us cash, but sending us a check or transmitting the funds electronically. And so the notations that you see associated with that would be something of the sort of 2 slash 10 net 30 which indicates that if the customer pays within 10 days, they can take a 2% discount. And if they don't do that, then the full amount is due in 30 days. 3-7 EOM means that the customer can take a 3% discount if they pay us within 7 days. Otherwise, they have to pay us by the end of the month. If you do the calculations on these discounts, it's almost always in the best interest of the buyer to take advantage of these discounts. And in this case, you would simply be responsible for taking the bottom line of the overall transaction and calculating a 2% or 3% deduction as would be appropriate, and then making sure that the funds are transferred to the seller in appropriate fashion. So one of the key elements in terms of sale is when does the customer have to pay? Another key element is the determination of when does ownership or when does title pass for a particular transaction? If any of you have ever purchased a car or a house or some other item of great value, you perhaps have attended a closing process. And in that closing process, various documents are signed that formally transfer ownership from one party to the other. 
and at some point in that overall process a document will be signed and at that point ownership will be legally transferred from one party to the next. Well in every business transaction there is the passing of title in every sale. If I sell you my car, if I sell you an iPad, if I sell you a box of taco shells. In every one of those transactions at some point title or ownership is going to pass from one party to the other. And as we've observed in talking about payment terms, it does not always coincide with when money changes hands. I might receive ownership of something today but not have to pay for it for another 30 days. And so one of the things that we will specify is when and where does title pass. Designated where is very important because of what that means as far as who's responsible for bearing certain costs of the transaction. Now as far as where the title passes, we will see terminology such as FOB origin, FOB destination, or even things like FOB and the listing of a particular location. FOB stands for free on board and then the location that is listed after that indicates where ownership passes. FOB origin means that title passes where the product originates. So if I'm here in Tennessee and I am selling something to someone in Florida, once I prepare the item and ship it to them, ownership changes hands at the point of origin. So as soon as I ship it from my location in Tennessee, it is now owned by the other party. FOB destination means that if I'm in Tennessee and selling to someone in Florida, ownership title does not pass until it reaches their location in Florida. FOB Chicago might specify that, and this wouldn't make sense in a Tennessee to Florida transaction, but this would indicate that once it reaches this particular location, at that particular location, title will pass. This is very important because not only does this specify who takes ownership when, it also is a key element in determining obligations associated with who's responsible for paying for transportation, who's responsible for insuring the product as it travels from point A to point B, are there any taxes associated with transportation, who's responsible for them. For example, if I order a product from a company and the terms of sale are FOB origin and the product is damaged in shipment, as the customer I'm on the hook for that because I own the item as it was in transit to me and so if I did not purchase insurance I'm out of luck. Whereas if the same transaction there was a specification of FOB destination then until the item arrives at my location safe and sound I don't actually own it. And so oftentimes this specification is important in business because it indicates who's going to pay shipping and transportation costs, who's going to be buying the insurance and so on. A term that you will frequently see associated with terms of sale is the term INCO terms. And this is particularly important in international transactions, but it also comes into play in interstate transactions as well. But this does actually get very, very complicated. And I've reproduced a chart here of various INCO terms that indicate the different notations that you will see and who bears responsibility. Notice, for example, that at the very top of this particular chart, we see the INCO term EXW. That stands for XWORKS. And notice in this particular transaction, if that's the term of sale, then that means that the buyer is responsible for having the item loaded onto a truck, having export customs paid, uh, they're responsible for getting the item to the port, they're responsible for unloading the item from the truck, 
They're responsible for loading the item onto presumably the ship. And ultimately, they bear all of the responsibilities until it reaches them. The seller has no responsibility in X-Works other than to make the item available at their location. Notice that the opposite extreme, DDP, is an acronym for Delivered Duty Paid. And you'll notice in that particular line in our table, in that scenario, the seller bears all the responsibilities until the transaction is concluded. And you can see based on the stair-step diagram here, there are actually terms that indicate at what point the responsibility shifts from the seller to the buyer. And so you'll notice that FOB that we talked about, free on board, is indicated as an alternative here where we would have FOB and we would list a location and at that point the title would pass and so the seller and buyer have have responsibilities based on where that location is designated. You'll notice for example CFR specifies who's going to pay for freight. CFR is a term for cost and freight and then you see things like CIF which is cost insurance and freight and so on and it's not important for us to understand the nuances or the technicality of this table in detail but the key point that I want you to get is specification of these terms is very critical because although we hope this will never happen there may in fact be a dispute that would arise and perhaps even there would perhaps be litigation associated with a particular business transaction and in that case everything will revolve around what were the stated terms of sale for a particular transaction and so notice here we have a purchase order that we have received from a customer in our discussion of the procurement process we talked about the creation of a purchase order so this is not a new document for us but I would call to your attention that in section 3 of this document notice that it specifically lists that the FOB point is the receiving dock by knowing that receiving dock was specified this indicates that the customer will take ownership at their particular receiving dock and so you'll also notice that there's specification there of payment terms now in thinking about terms of sale you might be wondering well wouldn't the seller always want title to pass as soon as they possibly could that way they're not on the hook for transportation or damages and so on and that's absolutely right but the buyer of course wants title to pass as late as in the process as they can get it they don't want to take ownership until it's actually at their location and they have the ability to verify it and so once again that's why this becomes a point of negotiation and we might agree to pay a higher price if the terms of sale will be adjusted to be something that was more amenable to our particular organization. And so this particular purchase order that we have received from a customer would be entered into our computer system and a sales order would be generated in response. And you'll notice that the sales order is simply reflective of the information from the customer's purchase order along with our reflection of the date the information was received, confirmation of the various payment terms, costs, and so on. And so a purchase order is responded to by a sales order within our system. A key element to note about a sales order, and this particular uh, text box here at the top of this slide represents just an excerpt of some of the data, that's typically found on a sales order within our system. When a sales order is actually created in SAP or any ERP system, various data elements from other parts of our system are leveraged in verifying information, doing calculations, and so on. For example, all of our customers have a customer number. 
and that is reflected on the sales order, that customer number and its connection to the actual facts of the customer, such as the company name, their location, and so on, that connection is established in the customer master. All of the items that we sell have material numbers associated with them. Well, the relationship between the material number and what that item actually is, is established in the material master. Prices. We've already established that different customers pay different prices, and we may have different pricing scales and validity dates and so on. Well, more generally, prices are referred to as conditions in the context of ERP. And in a certain sense, you can think of that because the price will vary based upon a wide array of set of conditions. And so condition data influences the price that would be set. And then, of course, we have other things that are going to be leveraged, such as when we can ship the item out, when it will be delivered to the customer, and so on. And all of that information is loaded into various configuration tables that are maintained by our system. We already observed that sales orders can come into a system based on inquiries or quotations associated with a particular customer. And so that data might also be leveraged and copied into the creation of this particular document. So in looking at our sales order process, we've talked a bit about pre-sales activities. We've talked about sales order entry. Let's look at the continuing steps in the process. The next one here is checking of availability. The checking availability step is fairly straightforward logically. We're going to look at is the product that the customer wants to purchase from us currently available? And perhaps, if not, when will it be available? And this is a key business decision that we have to make as an organization. There are many companies, for example, that will not allow a customer to place an order for something if it's not something that they actually have in stock. Your organization in ERP SIM works in that way. If a customer contacts you and wants to order, place an order with you, but you don't already have the item on hand, then you reject that customer order. Other companies will advertise and accept orders for products that they don't have as long as they know that they can either produce the item in timely fashion or actually get it from a supplier in time. Perhaps you've noticed if you've done business with Amazon.com in the past that for most of their items, they indicate that they can ship them out immediately, indicating that they actually have the item in their warehouse. But for some items it will list, ships in five days, ships in one week, and so on. And that's based on the fact that they're willing to accept your order, but the product isn't available at that point. They're going to have to get it from the supplier, which will take them a couple of days, and then they will fulfill your order. This availability check can be set up to be part of the order acceptance process. And so what might actually happen is a salesperson or a clerk might enter a potential order into the system, and the system might actually respond by rejecting some of the line items if the items aren't available. And so this is going to depend upon how we have our ERP system configured. There are lots of different ways that we can set up our system to do the availability check. And some of this just depends on how this particular customer order will be fulfilled and how the product will be supplied. For example, in a make to stock strategy business of which your ERP SIM company is an example, we sell from stock on hand, and therefore we don't accept orders if we don't have the item. Other organizations will accept orders if they have planned production in the future that will be able to accommodate the creation of the items necessary for this customer order. And so in this case, the 
fulfillment, the availability check here, is not specifically order dependent. And so what happens is, is we take in an order from a customer, and at that point we are planning our production. We're not planning it to fulfill a specific customer order, but we just know that in the future we cycle through all of our products, and so certainly within the next seven to 10 days, we will be making this item, and therefore we can fulfill the customer's order. We might know when we are receiving items in from our supplier, and therefore know that although we don't have this particular product in stock today, we anticipate it arriving tomorrow or next Friday, and so in a situation where we're buying a product and turning around and reselling it to our customers, we might have the system check for when our next order is due in from our suppliers. In make-to-order production, we take in orders from customers and then produce in response to that particular order. And so in this case, you'll notice we're fulfilling the customer's order out of production, and production is dependent upon the individual orders that we have gotten in. And so that's another way that we could be doing our availability check, and therefore on that basis, what we might actually have the system check for us is whether we have the ability to produce the order in time to fulfill the customer's time demands. One of the things that many organizations will do is engage in drop shipping. And the logistics of a drop shipping transaction are as follows. The customer will place an order with us. We'll turn around and order it from a third party and will request that that third party ship the order directly to our customer. So as far as the customer is concerned, they're dealing with us and they're contracting with us and they're paying us. And so their relationship is with us, but we're actually using a third party to ship the item to the customer and to fulfill the order. And so if there's any discrepancy, the customer is going to contact us, and then we will have to contact the third party to work it out. But in many instances, the customer doesn't even realize that this relationship with the third party exists. It simply is a different way that we fulfill the customer's order. And then we will sometimes see organizations that have multiple locations and the order cannot be fulfilled from our particular plant, but it can be fulfilled from another plant in our overall company system. I've noticed that here in Tennessee, when I order from Amazon.com, that typically those orders are fulfilled out of a warehouse in Kentucky. And typically as a result of that, the items show up very quickly. But I have noticed on some occasions that the items will come from California or Texas or some other distribution center. Well, in that case, it would seem like that what may be happening is that the Tennessee location may be out of the product, and so it's being shipped from another warehouse. That would be an example of the transfer process being used as a part of the availability check. And so, as we're looking at the process here, after the order goes into the system, we do whatever availability check has been specified in the configuration of our system, and then it's time to pick the materials, pack the materials, and then post the goods issue. The picking document is a slip that is created in our organization for use in the warehouse for them simply to know what items are a part of a customer's order, in what quantities, and where those items are stored in the warehouse overall. And the way this commonly works in an organization is that there'll be people that work in the warehouse fulfilling these orders, and there's a printer there. And as new orders come in from customers, the printer just spits out a steady stream of these picking documents, and the employees walk over, pick up the picking slip, walk through the warehouse and assemble the items, and then drop the picking slip off with their notations on it 
in the packing area for the item to be packed into boxes and ultimately fulfilled. Notice with the picking document, two of the key elements that are listed here are not only the quantity that the customer ordered, but how many were actually picked by the warehouse worker, and then what storage location those items should be removed from. Realizing that in a warehouse, particular products might be found in multiple locations, but of course you don't want to take a little bit from one location and a little bit from another location. You want to run out your supply in one slot and then move on to another slot. And so the picking document indicates where those items should be, received, should be retrieved from. And so the picking document is used by the warehouse people to fulfill the customer's order. The picking list is strictly for our in-house purposes, but the packing list is a document that is formally created and sent to the customer along with the shipment. And when we were talking about the procurement process, we talked about the packing list. So there's really nothing new here for our for us to observe about this, except simply the idea that we are creating it now as opposed to simply receiving it. The post goods issue process, which is the step that comes after picking and packing, is as we referenced before, a indication of when title actually passes in the system. And what we are doing in the post goods issue step is posting into the system that the goods have been issued to the customer. And so we engage in that particular business process step at the appropriate point based on the FOB terms associated with the sales order. And in fact, in most sales transactions in ERP systems, there's really not much significance to this step as far as executing it, except we'll execute a particular transaction key in an order number and indicate that the goods issue should be posted and at that point ownership actually changes hands. Well the next step in the process here is invoicing the customer and in invoicing the customer this is a key element here of course because we need to make sure that we get paid appropriately for this transaction and so as we create the invoice we're going to pull information from the order that we received from the customer. We're going to pull information from the delivery document, the packing document that shows what we sent to the customer, and then we're also going to pull in data from things like the customer master data for the sake of giving us addresses to send this to and so on. A key element in this is going to be dealing with any discrepancies that we might see. For example, maybe the customer ordered 50 items of something from us, but yet the packing lists indicate that we only shipped them 40. Well, it's going to be very important that we bill the customer for appropriate amounts and then deal with things like back orders in accordance with what the customer has specified. So in this creation of the invoice, we're going to have to deal with any discrepancies of that sort based upon our desired method of handling those. From an accounting perspective, when we create an invoice, that is when we increase the amount that is due to us from our customer on their receivable account, and that is when we recognize our revenue. So a key point to note about the making of a sale process is we will typically in most organizations invoice the customer and then at that point when we invoice them is when we actually register this as being sales revenue. So up until that point in this overall process we have not increased our revenue until we get to this particular step. And we've seen an invoice before and talked about it in the context of the procurement process, so there's nothing notable for us to add to that in terms of the particulars of the document. As far as the logistics associated with the creation of invoices and billing, there are lots of different ways that systems could be set up to handle this. 
For example, we might have occasions when we would have to split an invoice. And so the idea is that we get a sales order from a customer. That sales order results in our sending a delivery to the customer, but yet we actually send two different invoices. Oftentimes this happens when we have a customer that actually buys on behalf of, let's say, multiple departments, and different departments each need their own invoice. It's kind of akin to going to a restaurant and sitting at one table with other people for dinner, and then when the bill comes, asking the waitress to split it. Well, that's what's going on here, where we have one sales order, but yet our system is going to have to split it into multiple invoices based on customer request. Sometimes you'll see this when a customer orders merchandise from us, and we also agree to come to their location and install it, but there's a charge associated with that. And so there's actually one delivery, but the customer receives an invoice for the merchandise and then another invoice for the labor associated with it. Sometimes, of course, we might see one sales order that results in multiple deliveries and then multiple invoices. And so certainly that can be accommodated. And then we see all kinds of other variations here where perhaps we have a variety of sales orders and deliveries that all get consolidated on a single invoice. There are a lot of organizations that buy in frequent that buy frequently from a supplier perhaps even on a daily basis and the supplier is always delivering new merchandise to them and what they'll request is that for ease of record keeping that the supplier just invoice them once a month and so all of the customers orders are accumulated and then periodically an invoice will be sent to the customer reflecting the cumulative unpaid transactions to that point. And so there are lots of different scenarios that we can accommodate in our billing system. Invoice splits can be used to bill for different items like materials and services, and collective invoices can be used to consolidate deliveries onto one invoice to minimize paperwork. So this is going to be an element of where our configuration has to match the way we would like to see this happen as an organization and then also a customer's desired way of having their invoicing done. And so this can be different on a per customer basis if we set up our system accordingly. Well, we are here at the end of the sales order process. We have invoiced the customer and so now it is time to actually receive the payment from them. And payment is the final step in the overall order management cycle. And really, there's not a great deal of complexity here, but one of the key items is the reconciliation process. We will receive payments from customers that we have to post against the invoices. And oftentimes, unfortunately, there are discrepancies. Let's say, for example, that we have two invoices that we have sent to customers, one for $1,500 and one for $1,400, and the customer mails us a check for $1,600. Well, which of those invoices is that payment associated with? And then, of course, there's going to be an overage. How do we apply that to the other invoice? What happens if the customer places an order with us, we send them the items, we send them a bill for $1,550, and for whatever reason, they send us a check in payment for $1,540. And there's this $10 discrepancy, perhaps just due to someone miscalculating something or taking a discount they weren't due and so on. Well, if the difference is trivial, we may just write off the discrepancies. But of course, writing off $10 is very different than writing off $10,000. And so we have to have a process for reconciling the differences. If we're extending payment terms to customers, where we give them 30 days to pay, 
and they're steadily ordering from us, then we would want to employ the logic in our payment processing program to always apply their checks against the oldest open invoice at the time. And so there is actually some complexity associated with making sure these get posted properly so that the customer's account is kept up to date and their, their discounts are given when appropriate and so on. We may also see situations where what the customer ordered is not what they received due to the material not being in stock or perhaps we sent them some items but they returned them because some of the items were damaged or otherwise defective. And so we have to reflect the fact that although we sent them an invoice for a certain amount, they returned some of the items and so we give them a credit for that and then apply the payment accordingly. So there are some real logistical challenges here that we have to incorporate in effective posting of payment. And it should go without saying that clearly this is an area that our customers are going to be very interested in as they want to make sure that we're not trying to bill them for things that they should not have that they should not be billed for and so correctly reflecting their payments is going to be a key element in keeping them satisfied we may configure we likely will configure our system to engage the dunning process if customers have not paid on time. And so if a customer is supposed to pay us within 30 days, perhaps we set up our system so that on day 40, if we still have not received payment, we send the customer some kind of reminder notice. And on day 60, if the customer still hasn't paid, then we send them a more forceful letter requesting that they pay immediately. And there is generally an entire sequence that we go through where we increasingly up the nature of our requests and up the strenuousness in which the request is generated based on how past due the customer is and what the overall amount is. And so there are some complexities associated with this payment pro posting process. Oftentimes it's caused simply because of the way our customers elect to pay us. We might have a customer, for example, that has many, many open invoices with us and they'll send us one check to cover those multiple invoices. So we have to post one payment as reflective of fulfilling the obligation associated with many invoices. Where this gets particularly challenging is if they have, for example, four open invoices and they've sent us enough money to cover a portion of these four, but not all of them. Well, do we use it to pay invoice one and three and leave two and four open? Figuring out how to do this allocation can be very challenging. Payment posting is typically done in an organization by a functional area called the Accounts Receivable Department, which is a subset of the overall accounting department in our organization, and their work particularly focuses on this aspect of business operations. If we think about the information flow that's associated with the overall fulfillment process, there are lots of different kinds of questions that we might have for a particular instance of the overall fulfillment process. Things like, what's the status of an order that we have gotten from a customer? Has the order been acted on? Which step in the overall sales order process isn't currently in? Have the goods ship? When did they ship? Where are they now? Do we have a tracking number? If the item hasn't shipped, when can we expect it to ship? If it has shipped, have we sent the customer an invoice? Have we gotten payment from the customer? All of those are very logical questions that we might have for a particular instance of the fulfillment process. And we would expect our ERP system to help us in answering these questions. As far as looking at this from a big picture perspective and looking at the overall process, we have questions like how well is our is our fulfillment process working? 
How much time does it take us to fulfill an order on average? Are there certain materials that we are delayed in fulfilling? Are there differences in how we service certain customers at particular locations? If we look at our customers, are there certain customers that are notably late in paying us or other customers that are very prompt in their payment? On a bigger picture level, what items do we sell the most and to which customers? Who are our best customers? What are our best products? Are there products that we should retire because we're not selling them in high volume? Are there customers that we should stop dealing with because they don't really place significant orders with us and perhaps they're habitually late in paying? And so this is, these are elements of the information flow associated with this overall process. Well, looking at the accounting impact associated with various process steps in the fulfillment process, when we ship goods to the customer, this is when you'll notice from our income statement perspective, what our sales order process will do is it will increase our revenue associated with a particular transaction and of course there will be an increase in the cost of goods sold associated with that particular transaction which will of course also influence our overall net income and so you'll notice in this particular hypothetical example we collected two thousand nine hundred forty dollars in revenue from the customer the cost of goods sold associated with that transaction was $2,170 and then there are other things not shown in this overall income statement but you'll notice that left us with a net income that has gone up now by $770. From a balance sheet perspective we have asset accounts that are affected by the sales order process or the fulfillment process and that is we have our inventory levels going down and our accounts receivable levels going up accordingly. When we actually receive payment from the customer at that point our cash account is going to go up and our accounts receivable account is going to go down indicating that the customer has fulfilled their overall obligation. So to bring us back where we started here, the fulfillment process has six to eight to ten different steps in it depending upon how we choose to look at the overall process. If we're looking at starting with the inquiry or simply starting with the receipt of the customer's order and if we include steps associated with post goods issue and so on. So as we think about the questions that we talked about in regards to the procurement process,